welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacies of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions, so this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Welcome to episode 24 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. We'll be going back in time 70 years to discuss Mighty Joe Young, the 1949 classic. My name is Connor Heaney, I'm the collections manager for the foundation and I'm joined by John Walsh, a trustee for the foundation. How are you John? Hello Connor, I'm very well and, uh, and happy new year as well. Yes, happy new year to you. Uh, 2019 is already shaping up to be an extremely busy year and I can't think of any better way to start our podcast schedule for the year than talking about Mighty Joe Young, Ray Harryhausen's first movie project, the first film that he ever worked upon and uh, an undisputed classic of the stop motion genre. Uh, we've, got, we've got a lot to talk about today and uh, I'm quite excited to delve into it. John, what are your memories of Mighty Joe? Because we're obviously, we're going quite far back here. 70 years is a, a long time and um, this is the oldest film that we've discussed on our podcast as yet. Um, what are your memories of, of Mighty Joe Young? Well, I always remember Mighty Joe Young from its screenings on BBC Two um, in the 1980s and it always felt like it was a cousin of uh, King Kong because it was similar special effects and at the time, it was, it was always something, a bit of a curio, because it's not a monster movie, like some of Ray's uh, later films with Beast and 20,000 Fathoms and so on. And yet it does seem like a cousin to King Kong, in that the, uh, the ape himself is smaller and the, and the story is different. But it, it ticks many of the uh, King Kong boxes. But in, in recent years, it's meant more, because in this episode of this podcast, we'll be delving into the uh, unreleased commentary recording that I made with uh, Ray and John Landis uh, on the 21st of December 2012. So we get to to reveal some of those clips for the very first time. And it is always interesting hearing what other people say. And when people hear you say, Connor, it's a classic, and, and, and I repeat, yes, it's a classic, the very definition of a classic is if there's still interest in it in the greater uh, public and that the studio is still putting resources behind it, and they are. You know, Mighty Joe Young is a film which we enjoy and we consider a classic, but so does the uh, the larger marketplace and the, the, the commercial entity that is Warner Brothers, who now looks after these assets from the RKO library. So um, I'm quite excited about this, and I'm hoping that fans of Mighty Joe will get to find out some maybe new information they didn't know before. Yes, I hope so, and as you mentioned, we'll be peppering our, our show with clips of, of Ray and Ray Harryhausen and John Landis discussing Mighty Joe Young, which is just a joy to hear them both talking about it because 
John Landis, as well as being a famous director, is essentially a film historian as well. He's very, very interesting view on the, on the history of cinema, and he's very passionate about this era of filmmaking. And uh, Mighty Joe Young was one of his favourite films uh, growing up because, as you mentioned, uh, you saw it on television in the, the 1980s. And uh, during the 1950s in, in the USA, this was one of the, um, I think John described it as million-dollar movies, which was essentially it was on television every night of the week. So if you were a child, or if you were if you were growing up or watching television at that time in the USA, you would have seen Mighty Joe Young quite a few times, and I think it ingrained itself into people's consciousness that way. And I think similarly to how Jason and the Argonauts or Clash of the Titans are screened in the UK on bank holidays and at Christmas, um, I've heard that Mighty Joe Young is regularly shown on television at Thanksgiving in America. So it's become one of those traditional films that people like to watch at special times of the year and, and when they're on holiday and so forth. Okay, well let's do a quick plot summary for Mighty Joe Young. Max O'Hara and his psychic Greg are searching the remotest parts of Africa for animals to appear at O'Hara's nightclub. They come across Joe Young, a 10-foot gorilla, and attempt to capture him, but learn that only Joe Young who has raised the gorilla from infancy can control the beast. Visualising the possibilities for his nightclub, Armstrong ships them both to Hollywood, where Mr. Joseph Young of Africa becomes the star attraction. There, Joe performs a number of tricks for the audience, including holding a piano above his head for Jill to play and performing a tug of war with strongmen and wrestlers. But Joe is unhappy. One night when he is sitting in his cage, two drunken club patrons get him intoxicated and he breaks out, totally destroying the nightclub. Joe, however, redeems himself when he rescues a child from a burning orphanage in a dramatic fashion. Joe is returned to Africa alongside Jill and Greg who accompany their large gorilla friend back home. So Mighty Joe Young was first released on the 27th of July 1949. Its uh, primary cast consisted of Terry Moore as Joe Young, Ben Johnson as Greg, Robert Armstrong as Max O'Hara, and Mr. Joe Young as himself. The technical cast and crew included Willis O'Brien as the technical creator, Ray Harryhausen as first technician, and Pete Peterson as second technician. Marcel Delgado constructed the six Joe Young latex armature models, with George Lofgren, taxidermist, creating the fur for the animated models. Within the Ray Harryhausen collection today, we hold one of these original Joe Young models, alongside a number of important key artworks created by Willis O'Brien, Ray Harryhausen himself, and Mario Larinago. We also hold one of the armatures which was used for Jill Young during the famous piano sequence and had been repurposed from a War Eagles model. We also hold an exact replica of the Mighty Jill Young armature, the Jennifer model as it was called, which was made for Ray by Eighth Wonder Studios. As you mentioned, it, it is a, it's a classic. It does um, have, have strong parallels with King Kong and that's mostly due to the fact that it's essentially the same team that created King Kong. Um, it's the legendary animator Willis O'Brien and producer and director Ernest Shosak and Marion C. Cooper. 
And you can just imagine Ray Harryhausen as a man in his 20s going to meet his heroes and then going along to work with them um, on, on his first film project. It must have been a, a tremendous experience. It must have been. And uh, let, let's kick off with our, our first delve into our own mini audio archive with uh, John Landis discussing how he watched multiple times on television Mighty Joe Young. Here we go. This right. is one of my favourites. You know, in, in Los Angeles... Actually, in the United States, the RKO television stations was Channel 9 in New York City, Channel 9 in L.A., and I don't know what the locals were. It was like in 16 or 20-some cities across America. They were the local stations. They would have programming in the 50s and 60s called Million Dollar Movie. Do you remember that, I remember that, yeah. And the Million Dollar Movie, the programming was every night at 8 o'clock would be the same movie for a week. Plus, twice on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> so my generation, uh, we literally, I was born in 1950, so all of us, I mean, Joe Dante in New Jersey would watch the New York station. Me in California would watch the L.A. station, but people all across the country. We would watch these movies, and they would be movies like Mighty Joe Young, um, Godzilla, Oh, thing. Don't compare Godzilla. No, no, just all these movies, yeah. the kind of movie. They would show tons of <laughs> fantasy pictures yeah. and, Frank, you know, the universal horror pictures. Sure. And we'd, we'd see and we'd memorize them. We would know the entire dialogue from the movies. I must have seen this movie 75 times by the time I was 12. I love this picture. John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young. So it's great to hear, of course, Ray and and fellow American John Landis. Um, for those people who are not entirely familiar with John Landis and know the name, of course, he's the iconic director of films like Animal House, American Wealth in London, uh, Trading Places, Coming to America, and, of course, the iconic Michael Jackson's thriller short film. It's great to hear them talk, isn't it, uh, Connor? And, and to be so enthusiastic about um, the process and, and the people who are around at the time. Um, you, you've done a special um, collation, haven't you, of this commentary? So you, you've really listened to it quite closely. Yeah, and it was a joy to listen to because um, you know they're both obviously both legendary filmmakers. But um, aside from that, uh, John Landis and Ray Harryhausen were very good friends, and this is something that I've spoken about with Ray's daughter Vanessa, where she really appreciates the, the friendship that uh, that John Landis offered to her father. Um, they first met one another in. Uh, in 1980 during animation for Clash of the Titans and uh, became film friends ever since then. So listen to the commentary. There's a, there's a lot of fun between them because they're, they're kind of teasing each other at times and uh, they're discussing film history. And Ray was obviously there in the 1940s working with all of these legendary figures and John Landis as a young filmmaker got to, got to meet several of these characters and several of the people involved with the film in later life. So there's, a, there's parallels there. There's a kind of a, a generation thing where John was the person growing up watching the film and Ray was, Ray was there as a young man um, experiencing it all in, in the Hollywood studio system during the golden age of 1940s filmmaking in Hollywood. As you say, what, what, an, what an amazing experience it must have been just to be a young man in that environment, picking up so many lessons, uh, lots of positive lessons, and probably quite a few cautionary tales as well. Absolutely. You know, he met the legendary film director, John Ford, and uh, let's just see what uh, John Landis had to say about that when he met him for lunch. Whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. Did John Ford ever come into the animation? No. No. 
I had lunch with him once. He was a crusty old guy. One eye, very kind of, in that's charge. a good word. Not a nice man, but a oh, great really? film. Oh, oh horrible guy. But Fabulous. great filmmaker. John Wayne was terrified of him. See mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. So interesting that, um, you know, a, a star as big as John Wayne felt very much um, under the guidance, shall we say, of, of John Ford, who, who was very much a man who cast a very long shadow in cinema and in the studios he worked, admired um, um, by people as equally as feared by them as well. Um, but uh, to, to, to go now a bit more into the details of the film, um, I've been digging around and trying to find out as many facts about the film for, for the new uh, book, Harry House and the Lost Movies, which comes out in September. And... Most people know that it was Ray's first film and that he worked under the direction of Willis O'Brien. But uh, Ray completed 95% of the animation that was used in the final film. And there was early plans to shoot the film in colour, but it was decided that it would be too expensive. Um, But interestingly, tests were made in colour, photographic film tests, uh, but none have survived, which is incredibly frustrating. I would love to have been able to have included some of those in the book. Um, but the original title was Mr. Joseph Young of Africa, and it's amazingly partly based on a true story entitled Toto and I, A Gorilla in the Family, um, by a woman called Augusta Maria Dower Hout. And it was published in 1941, and it was about uh, the adoption of a baby female gorilla after it's orphaned during a hunt in Equatorial Africa in 1931. And the book chronicles... Um, that lady's experience of raising Toto as a family member and dressing her in human clothing. Um, where the film departs, of course, is the, the trip to to Hollywood and, 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 and what continues there. But I, I must say, to, to say it's partly based on a true story seems um, quite incredible, doesn't it, Connor? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's um, it, it, as you mentioned at the start of the show, it's, it's a far more kind of friendly family friendly affair um mighty joe young is by no means a, a monster or a creature on the rampage he's a very sympathetic character and he's you know he's essentially the film's protagonist so so t- so for it to be based on a, a true story when when you see some of the film's posters and some of the uh, re-release posters in particular that you can see in richard hollis's um harryhausen the movie posters book you see this this huge gorilla and snarling and on on, on the rampage, but in fact the uh, the truth of the film is it's a it's a it's a very warm and friendly picture and uh, the the emotion which is invested into into Mighty Joe Young is is quite special. So so yes, uh, the imagination of I suppose it was Willis O'Brien who who read this book and uh, he'd always been associated with with gorillas ever since King Kong and I suppose that fired him up to to have another go at creating a another gorilla picture, another smash hit. I think so, yes. And uh, in, in, in sort of my research for, for what was cut from the film, um, there was going to be more than one gorilla. There was, uh, in, uh, in the, during the two years of pre-production, uh, there was many scenes that were cut and uh, there's some beautiful artwork from Willis O'Brien that reveals what could have been. Um, but the, the, the scenes that most fascinated me was there was a cable car sequence with a fight between two gorillas. And the second was a crash landing on an island, uh, which leads to a showdown between uh, Mighty Joe and a pack of lions. Now, the artwork, the colour artwork for that does exist, and it will be in the Lost Movies book later this year. Um, it's it's amazing to think it was going to be a, a bit more of an aggressive and fighting film. Um, and this is what John Landis had to say about gorillas fighting.
I like gorillas. I don't it's want them hard. fighting. I don't mind gorillas smashing people, but gorillas <laughs> smashing gorillas, I'm not happy. <laughs> well, where'd the other gorilla come from? The zoo? Or uh, <laughs> that part of the script, uh, I'd forgotten all that. No, I think there was a, a competitor or something. See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty. A mere girl mastering a primitive giant. So interesting, John Landis has always been a big fan of gorillas. There's gorillas in, in many of his films, unexpectedly, uh, perhaps, in some of his films, like uh, Schlock and like um, uh, Trading Places. On the train, of course, there's the, there's the gorilla sequence. Um, did you know that, Connor, that there were a few scenes that had been cut uh, from, from the film? Uh, you know, they'd been planned, but didn't make it. That's right. When, actually, we're... we're lucky enough in our in our vast archive for the Ray Harryhausen collection Ray was able to save some of this artwork original artwork by by Willis O'Brien and actual actually uh, another artist named Mario Laranaga who who had uh, created some of the concept sketches for the film and this color artwork is fantastic and it shows you s- sequences in the in the movie which which just were not fulfilled and not filmed at all in the first place, or or altered in the final movie. So we have this this crash landing with the with the attack of the lions and uh, just some alternative takes on on the story and the setup and the famous nightclub sequence. Uh, there's a spectacular color watercolor picture by by Willis O'Brien of this uh, proposed nightclub sequences with uh, you know lions balancing on beach balls and mighty Joe Young standing on a on an incredible construction. So. The, the final film wasn't quite as extravagant. It's still a, a wonderful sequence, but I think uh, O'Brien, or Obi, as he was commonly known, uh, really let his imagination run wild. And I suppose the long lead-up to the, the film's production, I mean, Ray started working with Obi in 1946, so there was two years of, of pre-production, and uh, during that time it seemed like uh, Willis O'Brien was just churning out ideas, storyboards, drawings, concept sketches, and to see some of, some of the pictures which weren't used for the final film but which we have in our archive was just um they're really splendid and um, you can see why why ray looked up to obi so much because fantastic artwork it must have been a real apprenticeship uh, working alongside him and and taking part in the early stages of mighty joe young there was to have been a fight in an auditorium with the tigers with drunken revelers there was going to be a scene where joe um, was throwing lions into the shark tanks and and, and, a, and, and a fascinating one which we do have the artwork for uh, and this was one that Ray created himself of Joe pulling a horse and the rider to the ground. Uh, so it, I think you're right, Connor, the uh, being around a, a consummate artist like Willis O'Brien, who seemed to sort of, I won't say churn them out, but was, 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 was really sort of manufacturing, if you like, and popping out these amazing production arts that would take people weeks and perhaps months to labour over. Obi was doing them there really quite quickly and, and it showed a real sort of underlying talent um, but it's 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 frustrating to think what the film could have been. But that's not to say that the film isn't very good. I mean, it's the fact that it's it's played regularly, the fact that people remember the story, and the fact that filmmakers like John Landis remember it. Um, because remember, this was not in any sense uh, a B picture. This was a main studio picture. And just popping back now to John's commentary, he makes that remark to Ray about the the status. Of the film. See mighty Joe Young, enraged by Hollywood pranksters, destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on the fabulous Sunset Strip. But it's interesting because there's a, the work in these pictures. This is not a B picture. They spent money on. Oh, uh, 
went over yeah. budget. Yeah, we were going to shoot it in color one time, but that it got too costly. So we made tests on in color, but well, that's what happened to to uh, Last Days of Pompeii and she, you know, yeah. uh, they were both supposed to be shot in color and and. Uh, the RKO wouldn't put up the, the money, advance there money. There he is. Mighty Joe Young, the picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. So it's 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 amazing to see how filmmakers notice everything in in real detail and the influence that seeing the same film over and over has. Because if we think of content today, if you were to switch on and if you've got a subscription to Sky and Netflix and Amazon and so on. Most people I know will watch a film once and won't watch it again and, and wonder why you might want to buy the physical Blu-ray or 4K because they, well, I've seen that. Um, so I think there is a sense of not wanting to return to something you've already seen because it has less value, it has less currency. But when John Landis was watching television, there would be very few films like this. So, of course, when they come on, of course you have to watch them again. Or as Mark Gatiss said last year when he was watching Jason and the Argonauts on television, it would be very special because there were very few films like that. So I think Ray was lucky to be working at a time when there was few films like this. But of course now we have the uh, the ultimate luxury of being able to download in in 4K most of these films and certainly in Blu-ray all of these films. So it's I think the accessibility has made them, um, I suppose, less special in that television scheduled way, but still exciting, I think, for us to show them to, to young viewers, wouldn't you say, Connor? Yes, and I think Mighty Joe Young in particular seems to be a movie that animators, stop-motion animators, or people that are involved in the special effects industry, um, Mighty Joe Young seems to be one that they like to analyse in, in, in detail, uh, probably because there is so much animation in the film. You know, from, from his introduction, Joe is basically in every scene, or, or most scenes from there on, and there's so much clever animation, there's so many sort of very technical and very complex sequences which are, are just a dream the, the the opportunity to watch um watch how how these uh, effects were achieved is is really enjoyable for for people who are are in that um in that field of expertise so i think ray on occasion um felt like his films maybe shouldn't have been analysed in such detail. I know that Alan Friswell, our conservator, told Ray that he'd watched Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger frame by frame. So he'd watched each frame individually, which is, you know, which is a godsend. If you're interested in, in Ray's work and you want to kind of analyse that so forensically and, and understand every single aspect of his films, then, um, you know, that's 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 what the wonder of dvds and uh, even with vhs that would have been difficult but when you've got dvds and you've got blu-rays that that opportunity to immerse yourself in the film uh, is really fantastic of course when when mighty joe young was first released most people would have gone to see it in the cinema and even if they'd seen it multiple times they wouldn't have been able to to really invest themselves in quite so much detail as we can today no, absolutely. And that's why it's great for us to be able to pour over this and over the commentary. Um, incidentally, there, there is a release of commentary that was created for the DVD and later ported over to the new Blu-ray release. And it's uh, Terry Moore, star of the film, along with uh, Ray Harryhausen and Ken Rolston, who's, um, who people know is an, an effects aficionado and had worked at Industrial Light and Magic and is a good friend here at the Foundation. Now back to our commentary record with John Landis, where he asks, inquires about Joe's furry coat. Mightier than King Kong, mighty Joe Young. But it's nice to see Joe walk by like that. And it's the same thing with, did he have the same fur as Kong? No. What did you use for his fur? He has fur? a special fur that George Lofkin 
uh, devised. That, with, that he was a taxidermist originally. What was it made of? It was made of uh, unborn calf. Oy. It was rubberized and, and stretched over the figure. Yeah. Well, you try not to disturb the hair each frame. Yeah. Well, is that true? I've always read, now that I can ask you, on Kong... They say that when they touched him, well, that was rabbit fur. But it, but in the film, it really looks like it's wind. It's the wind. But it was an accident, right? Yeah. It was an accident. It looks wonderful. Um, so John is a real detailed person, isn't he? Like many film directors are, he's really interested in the smallest possible detail as how things were animated. Was it the same type of fur as used um, in King Kong? And you know, for John, he was able to watch, as he says, a million dollar movie. So I wonder how much John became a film director specifically because of the films he's watched and whether Mighty Joe Young could claim to be the film that made John Landis the film director he is today. Well, it is interesting because throughout the commentary, he's he is asking Ray questions such as, where were you when this sequence was shot? Were you, you were you present during the live action filming? Did you see? And uh, it's, it's technical questions that, that perhaps we wouldn't think to ask. But of course, uh, in John's mind, after working on films such as American Werewolf in London, where he was he was there for everything. He was there for for Rick Baker's fantastic special effects extravaganza. He he found it quite unbelievable that Ray and Willis O'Brien and, and the rest of the technical team would be kind of removed from the the live action filming that was taking place but yes i i know that uh john as you've heard in the commentary said he'd watched mighty joe young sort of 50 or 60 times as a young man and he's also stated that uh, the seventh voyage of simbad was the film that made him want to become a director when he saw that film he realised what he wanted to do with his life. And that's uh, that's something we hear so often. We're, we're watching one of Ray's films that's just been that lightning bolt moment. Um, and it's a real testament to, to, to Ray's ongoing influence because it, the, the snowball continues through the generations. But yes, I think, as you mentioned, filmmakers love to, to watch these films. And, and I think they somebody like John sees, sees the film from a different angle than, than a... Than a not a casual viewer, but somebody like myself who, who's really just uh, enjoying the action and uh, enjoying the dialogue, as well as, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in Ray's personal biography and the effect that this film had on the rest of his career, because I think a lot of the lessons that he learned from this particular movie, he took with him for, for the rest of his life. Oh, most certainly, most certainly. And and, and, and John is quite split from his, his viewing experience because he talks about the technical, about how the gorilla was roped in that particular sequence, but then goes on in this clip um, to mention how how emotional the film made him feel. Have a listen. John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young. But <laughs> tell us about that. I'm interested, this sequence is so extraordinary with the ropes because yeah. you did it again in Guanji, but here... I just find it incredible when you have the wider shots that like that, where he see how he came in for a second? Yeah. It's just a look at this. And then the, the ropes, especially in the wide shots when the when they're tied. The, but you know, it takes a long many months so, yeah, on the sequence. How many animators were there? Then just me. Uh, they tried several other animators out, but they didn't. This was my shot, and I shot that. But now, on your pictures, your later pictures, you always were on the set directing yeah, the live action. Now, who who directed this live action? Uh, Cooper? Willis O'Brien. Or Willis O'Brien. Yeah. And I think the black and white helps. Joe, look at him. Do you see how he yeah, got off that horse? He's, he's, Joe, put him down. This movie used hey. to make me cry when I was a little boy during the, the orphanage fire. Oy. Oh, very much so. See, my 
mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. Um, uh, John Landis, funny enough, had the uh, had the thought that I had when I used to watch the film because I don't know if you remember Connor on the original 1933 King Kong. They used different size model um, versions of Kong that had stif- different facial uh, features, but also he seemed to have a different scale. Um, from sequence to sequence, he he would sometimes seem as if he was over a hundred feet high, and then other um, scenes would seem like he was fifty or sixty feet high. So um, it's interesting. John Landis goes on to ask Ray about the change of size of Kong and whether or not Joe went through the same problem. And here's that clip. Now is Joe. You know how King Kong changes size all the time in the movie? Yeah. yeah. Does Joe remain pretty constant? Because he seems bigger there than, whoops, ow. Well, he's supposed to be 12 feet high. But the rear projection plates were difficult because they were out. Of, a lot of them weren't very sharp in focus. Mm. But did you have a, a, a lighting cameraman? No. He did that, and then he was just reading the newspaper when I was animated. <laughs> Mightier than King Kong, Mighty Joe Young. It's interesting. I think why that probably happens on Kong and not on Mighty Joe is because there was more than one animation team working at the same time. So, and on Kong, it was really the first feature film to feature a main character in full stop motion. So when you compare both of these scenes, they're, they're worlds apart in terms of technical achievements clarity of image and smoothness of motion as well as that whole thing about the fur i think all animators recognize it's its finger and hand prints on the model itself that's making the fur uh, move but as interesting as john landis said earlier he thought it was the wind going through kong's fur coats so it's interesting how you can attach um an, an emotional reaction to what is a, a technical if you like fault or failure of the uh, of the process Yes, King Kong, I think uh, many people assumed it was an intentional thing. So it's one of these happy accidents that um, that had occurred. But as, as uh, John and Ray discussed in that commentary clip, it was that innovation by taxidermist George Lofgren for the, the special rubberized fur, which allowed them to animate mighty Joe Young in a conv- not a more convincing fashion, but in a, in a smoother fashion and uh, with, with less disruption from, from the hands and the fingers of the animators. Of course, it helps that Ray Harryhausen was responsible for so much of the animation of Joe because that gives you consistency. Ray, by the age of 26, 27, Ray was, was already at the level of Willis O'Brien and uh, more or less sort of mastered the art of animation, which is incredible for your first film as a, as a sort of first technical assistant on on the picture it's uh, it's incredible that he was able to have so much responsibility on those young shoulders and that that helped i think joe to become a, a more consistent character his animation throughout the film is quite consistent and i think it's interesting to note that for that remaining sort of five or ten percent of the film which ray didn't animate it's quite clear that it wasn't ray it's quite clear that someone else had, had stepped in for particular sequences uh, and if you watch the film and uh, one of one of the the pieces that Ray did not animate was the uh, the sequence in, in the back of the truck where Joe's leaning out and kind of making funny faces and, and humorous gestures. And it, it looks quite different from something that Ray Harryhausen would do. It's, it's amazing that uh, you can you can tell the animator's handprint, so to speak, in his personal expression uh, so clearly. 
Um, and, and when Ree's not animating it, it's, it's, it's quite striking. When we look at um, Hollywood features now, though, Connor, there'll be banks of people, hundreds if not thousands of animators, who, who all have to adopt what's called a house style. So that, um, you know, there might be in, in one particular fight sequence between a few superheroes, um, two, maybe 300 animators and renderers and effects artists working in different countries. So that real sense of collaboration and bringing a house style together is essential the more people you have. And as you say there, just with the two or three extra creative persons involved, there's a different look and feel. And, you know, I think luckily for audiences at the time, it wasn't something that was noticed, but certainly uh, for technical craftspersons, they would have, they would have noticed. Um, but interestingly, Mighty Joe Young marks the end of something in Hollywood. And it was uh, really the end of the career for Willis O'Brien. It was the end of big budget special effects movies. And it was all down to a rather odd accounting system. Um, so rather than hear it from me, it's, it's much more fun to hear this um, from the great John Landis and Ray Harryhausen. Um, so let's take a listen. Here's the kind of movie you're waiting to see. You know, the, these budget numbers, when it's a studio picture, you never know what they're you charging what and they, the overages and they charge see, things to they, departments. A lot of the front offices yeah. put their charges on and they had nothing to do with the picture. Yeah, that happened. It's very misleading when you hear budget numbers because you yep. never really know what it means. <laughs> It's it's quite something because you get all these you know then there's a I'm sure they charge the 25 percent overhead you know I mean it's you know it just it's incredible sure. how, all the different ways. It's 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 interesting even today uh, studios are accused of of manipulating the figure work so the film's initial budget um, of of 1.5 million dollars ended up as 2.2 million dollars now. The perception was then that it was because of the trick photography and that, you know, Mighty Joe was was a was a, a film that was risky and didn't find a, a, a financial uh, reward from audiences because of the the uh, the trick photography or the stop motion animation. Now, obviously, that was very unfair at the time. It was never fully explained or understood. It, for, for accounting practices, it made sense to the studio. But what it did, it was it killed off other projects that were being planned. And there was lots of Willis O'Brien projects, of course, that never made it, including War Eagles. And even Ray Harryhausen himself found it very difficult to, to get uh, to work on any other pictures. So when we think about Ray's next film, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms... Um, that was a, a, a very different proposition. There was no two years in the planning. There was no opportunity to um, have any of the, uh, I suppose, the uh, the attention to detail that that would have been in uh, in Mighty Joe Young. So it's it was a learning curve in every sense of the word. So um, if we think about um, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms came along in 1953. So uh, a good sort of th- four years after Mighty Joe Young. And with with a tiny budget of two hundred thousand dollars. Now this turned things around for Ray, of course, because the film went on initially to make two point two five million dollars on its uh, initial run. So it, it 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 as it were put to bed the argument that these types of films were too expensive. But what it did show was that they could be made much more cheaply. Now this is something which has frustrated Ray and Charles Schneer for years. 
that because of the success perhaps of Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, it shows what you can do on a lower budget. So persistently throughout Ray's career, all of his films had, had much smaller budgets than people might have imagined. And I suspect, and I'm going to say here, going on the record, I think it's because of the accounting snafu at RKO, um, where they put the burden of all of the costs of other films that failed onto the shoulders of Mighty Joe, and it's a real shame. It is a shame because when you watch Mighty Joe Young, um, it's it's very luscious film. It's very almost luxurious in places with the the detailed glass paintings and the the very complex animation sequences, which feature lots of miniatures, lots of of sort of back projection and and um, interspersed with live action. It it all looks very technically impressive and i suppose people saw that i thought well it looks nice but look at the look at the cost look how much it costs look at the look at the uh, the eventual budget of of the movie and that that must have been frustrating uh for everybody involved because i'm sure that the animators were not getting uh, paid, paid a, a massive amount of money for for their tremendous efforts so by the time of the beast from Twenty Thousand fathoms which as you mentioned is a, is a few years on for, from mighty joe young so despite the fact that the film was a success and it even won uh, an Academy Award for Best Special Effects, it didn't perhaps launch Ray's career in the way that he might have expected. And indeed, Willis O'Brien, it didn't It didn't kind of give him a, a second wind, so to speak. It was the last major movie that, that Willis O'Brien would, would ever work upon. Uh, so so unfortunately, that that's, uh, that's it's sad to hear that sort of creative accounting or, or the, this problem with, uh, with budget meant that the, the art of stop motion was essentially tarnished for a few years. And what Ray did, I suppose, was essentialize the process by, by creating this, this dynamation system which allowed him to, to more or less become a one-man industry. And uh, what he did was very clever because he could create similarly spectacular special effects, but, but by himself there was nobody there helping him with the lights or, or, or anything else. It was, he was really working on his own. And, uh, and that is why he was able to make such impressive pictures throughout the 1950s. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Willis O'Brien will deservedly get a standalone podcast episode from us where we'll look at the films he tried to make and, of course, um, the films he did make, like Black uh, Scorpion. Um, in terms of legacy, the film did go on to win a special effects Oscar. So it was recognised within the industry that a big step forward had been taken with Mighty Joe. And, and there were plans for a sequel as well called... Um, Joe meets Tarzan, where Mighty Joe would have uh, met with Tarzan to be played by uh, Lex Barker at the time, who had just completed Tarzan and the Slave Girl in 1950. But the perceived high cost again of Mighty Joe Young uh, put a stop to this. Um, Then it was years later, in 1998, that Mighty Joe made a return to the big screen. And this time with a connection with John Landis, because Rick Baker was charged with bringing Uh, a a full-size Mighty Joe, animatronic Mighty Joe, back for this 1998 film from Walt Disney. And I think it's a very impressive film. Um, Rick Baker's animatronic work in that film is is amongst his very, very best. And uh, Charlize Theron plays the lead in it. And Ray Harryhausen and Terry Moore actually have cameos in the film. And it's recently just been released on uh, Disney Blu-ray, So if you hadn't had a chance to see the film before, I would urge you, if you know the original, have a look. Um, I think it's a great film. It's a great watch. It's it's an updated version. There are some CG effects in there as well. But the standout for me is uh, Rick Baker, who often works with John Landis and his brilliant animatronic gorilla. Uh, Have you seen the 1998 version, Connor? 
Yes, of course. I was a I was a, a child of the nineties. I grew up in the nineteen nineties, oh. and uh, anything with uh, Bill Paxton in it, especially he was the kind of the king of these uh, these nineteen nineties blockbusters um, that I enjoyed. And we've got a wonderful picture of Ray Harryhausen with Terry Moore and Charlize Theron, um, which was which was taken during Ray's cameo in the movie. Um, and I know that Ray loved Rick Baker's Gorilla, and Rick Baker made many gorillas over the years and I know that uh, that Ray saw some of some of Rick Baker's gorillas when he visited his home uh, but yeah and, I mean Ray was a, a big gorilla fan anyway and, and Rick Baker really made a magnificent model for the 1998 remake of Mighty Joe Young it, it looks it looks spectacular and um, it, it's you know far more naturalistic and, and more um, as you might imagine, a real gorilla to look, albeit sort of ten, ten times the size, and uh, that that take that they they had on the sort of more conservation themed film, yeah, it's a it's a fantastic nineties family film. So interestingly, there's been no full soundtrack release for the original sound recording for the score for Mighty Joe, um, but there is a rather wonderful um, monstrous movie music label release, and that involved the uh, Radio Symphony Orchestra of Slovakia. And I must say, it's really rather good. And you've used that before, Connor, on our on our music episodes, haven't you? That's right. We did our um, our early music of Ray Harryhausen podcast special, and we very thankful to to Monstrous Movie Music because uh, they provided or the, the the CDs within our archive, which uh, which they sent to Ray, provided uh, a lot of the the scores that we examined on that show. Um, a real labour of love for that particular label. The inlay uh, liner notes are, are a really interesting read. Uh, David Schechter and his team should be should be very proud. And one uh, interesting. Uh, cameo, another cameo for Ray and Whitey Joe Young is that uh, they invited him to play the cymbals on their re-recording of Beautiful Dreamers. So you have a, a little glimpse into Ray's brief musical career as he as he crashed the cymbals on their recording of the classic theme from Mighty Joe Young, Beautiful Dreamer, and that's detailed in the liner notes for that uh, re-recording. But yeah, without without labels like my um, monstrous movie music, you really wouldn't have any great opportunity to to listen to the soundtrack in depth, uh, other than watching the film itself. And of course, Connor, you've used some of that in the edit here in this podcast, so that um, people get to hear Mighty Joe's music. Interestingly, though, technically, the reason the film music probably doesn't exist anymore is because it's married now with the sound effects and the uh, audio dialogue. Um, for the film's mix so the separate elements tended not to be kept once they'd been married with the other sound elements and so were discarded so they didn't realize back in the uh, 30s and 40s that people like us Connor would pay lots of money to have them on little shiny silver discs but um, but such is life but the film itself of course has been beautifully restored by Warner Home Video and is available in either a standalone uh, Blu-ray, or you can buy it in the special effects collection, and that comes in a beautiful box effect, and like a like a book box, and it has Son of Kong, Mighty Joe, the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, and bizarrely them, the uh, <laughs> the film about the giant ants in the desert. All four of them films are they're 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 of different uh, varying quality. For for me, it's Mighty Joe and Beast, which are are the two standouts in the packet. Um, but the, the restoration on them, all four, is flawless. So if you're a fan of older monster movies and want to see beautiful restorations from Warner Home Video, then I can highly recommend those. And we hope, don't we, Connor, at some point in the future to license the full John Landis 
soundtrack uh, commentary to uh, to a future release of um, Mighty Joe Young. And you've given talks about Mighty Joe Young, and you know there's lots of other information and material out there that you could put together for a very special DVD release. Well, that, that's right. And um, as you mentioned, uh, there is still interest in this film. When you were talking about the soundtrack there, I was thinking that perhaps... In uh, 1949, people weren't thinking, wow, in 70 years, people are really going to want to, to listen to the soundtrack to this film. But people do, and uh, and people are very interested in the, the behind-the-scenes material. Testament from people who were involved in the creation of the film. And there are still... Well, I mean, we've, we've got a vast amount of resources on Mighty Joe Young in our personal archive. And there's still interest in, in the film... Um, to this day, uh, the University of Aberystwyth, or sorry, Aberystwyth University, uncovered a scrapbook from the film, which was bequeathed to them, um, containing lots of original artwork, sketches, and autographs from the entire cast and crew, including Ray Harryhausen and uh, Willis O'Brien. So, so they um, they invited me down to introduce a screening of the film. Um, Late last year, and it was it was wonderful. It was packed. There was standing room only during uh, during my my short introduction to the film, where we we spoke about some of this material from our archive, and then they they put on a, an exhibition about the the scrapbook that they found and some of this magnificent artwork and uh, and a discussion about Willis O'Brien and Ray Harryhausen. So. People are still interested in, in screenings of the film and in finding out information about some of the lost material from from the nineteen forty nine classic and and it's great and it's great to see. So we'd love to see, uh, or we'd love to hear this commentary with Ray Harryhausen and John Landis. And really, I think people should hear um, John and Ray discussing the film together and and enjoying watching the movie once more. Now we'll return to John Landis to give him and Ray the last comments um, in this episode. Uh, Connor, but before we um, press on with Mighty Joe, do you have some update news for our listeners? Yes, that's right. So just uh, um, some update on events for the Foundation in 2019. I'm delighted to announce that uh, Vanessa Harryhausen will be appearing, along with myself, at the Dynamation Celebration at the Balboa Theatre in San Francisco. So that's the 1st to the 3rd of March this year. So not long now, a month or so away from this recording, and it's being hosted by uh, Bay Area Film Events, and it's going to be a three-day festival of Ray Harryhausen movies, so they'll be showing all of your favourite Ray Harryhausen pictures, plus some some unusual material, some things which which even I've not seen, um, interviews with Ray from the late 1970s and early 1980s. So, uh, Vanessa and I will be hosting presentations and Q&A, and we'll be delving into our archive uh, to discuss some of Vanessa's personal memories of growing up with her her father and uh, this incredible menagerie of creatures and creations in the Harryhausen household. So that is the 1st to the 3rd of March, and we hope to see you all there. There'll be a special meet and greet on Friday the 1st of March where you'll be able to come come along and, and meet Vanessa and have your picture taken with her and, and talk to her about about her dad and about the, the ongoing work of the Foundation. And that's uh, something that we're all very much looking forward to, the guys at the Bay Area Film Events have got... Um, some fantastic things planned so so watch this space and take a look on our, our facebook and our official website for more details i was going to say that sounds good and uh, and connor you cut together a very nice um short film of our trip to san diego comic-con from 2018 which is now available online isn't it that's right if you go to vimeo.com slash ray harryhausen you'll see um uh the first part of our 
appearance at San Diego Comic Con and it's John's talk, Ray Harryhausen and me. And uh, again, very well received, a, a packed room full of, full of uh, eager Ray Harryhausen fans. And uh, so you can see that uh, as, a, as a teaser because um, there should be more to come on, in terms of... Um, lectures and presentations from the foundation so just keep listening to the podcast for further announcements and keep an eye on our facebook and twitter also in terms of announcements from the foundation we're delighted to have collaborated with arturk.org to make some of ray harryhausen's artwork available to purchase high quality prints extremely high definition photography by our Photographer Andy Johnson, who did a remarkable job in uh, capturing Ray's original images and creating these these wonderful files, which can now be purchased from artuk.org. And we've started with uh, a celebration of the seventh voyage of Sinbad. So some of Ray's key drawings for that film, the skeleton sequence, the snake woman and the the famous rock the rock hatching scene are now available and you can have those framed on on your wall at home um, fans are always asking when we do our events and presentations you know where, where they can purchase this original artwork and this is a, a collaboration we started with art uk who are who's a fantastic if you take a look at their website um, artists from across the uk um, and it's a wonderful resource into classic artists modern artists and it's great to have ray harryhausen on there too so so take a look at that and uh, you've seen the prints john that they look wonderful and i'm going to have a few up in my house myself yeah no they're fantastic i mean they make a perfect gift and they're they're at reasonable prices as well so these are i think going to be limited editions so they won't be long uh forever so do pop down to art uk online and take a look and uh if uh, that about wraps it up for us i think in this episode doesn't it connor yeah i think we've got a lot more to speak about, and as you mentioned, uh, uh, Willis O'Brien alone de- deserves a standalone episode. So that's something we'll look into, as well as some of the other, some of the other people that were involved with Mighty Joe Young, Mary and C. Cooper, and Pete Peterson, and all of these people that that Ray got to work with on his early, earliest film projects. So, so watch this space for for a further delve into into the careers of Willis O'Brien and his relationship with Ray Harryhausen. But for now, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion of Mighty Joe Young. And uh, as you mentioned, John, we'll finish with with none other than, than Ray Harryhausen and John Landis discussing the film. That's great. So here's John talking about the effect that Mighty Joe Young had on him. And uh, apparently this is the first time he had the opportunity to say, to say it to Ray to his face, which was wonderful in... Uh, in 2012 so thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time no i do actually i do love this movie this is a movie that i grew up with and i watched on tv all the time (laughs) and it's one of my favorite harryhausen pictures it really is i'm serious above clash of the titans actually i like jason and the argonauts i think the best of all your movies because jason and the argonauts has by far the most intelligent screenplay yeah it's a very good screenplay and it it makes a difference (laughs) Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, though, has still got the greatest creature ever. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2019. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. 
For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can also find our Facebook and Twitter links.